Welcome to episode 433 of the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and today we're going to talk a lot about nutrition because we have Alex Larson from Alex Larson Nutrition with us, a registered dietitian, also uh, experience with triathlon and cycling and the intersection of nutrition with all that. Stoked to have you, Alex. Well, thanks for having me again. It's good to be of back. Of course. Yes, the listeners are probably very happy right now to know they're going to get some good info. And we also have Ivy Audrain with us, Fenton Bikes and Trainer Roads, Ivy Audrain. And we're going to talk some strategy stuff too. And Ivy's going to walk us through that. Uh, let's get into Kaido's question. I hope that's how you say your name. Could be Kato, could be Kaido. I couldn't get a straight answer from the internet. So uh, it says, <laughs> I was just wondering if dates were a healthy way to fuel your ride. There are a lot of carbs in them, but also a lot of sugar. If fueling with only dates, will it be bad for my health? Also, do you have any tips for cheap, high-carb alternatives to gels and drink mix? Thanks. Love the podcast and can't wait to hear your reply. And uh, Ivy, this is kind of timely because Tobin just said on last week's episode that uh, he takes in dates as like an alternative fuel uh, when, yeah. he's, when he's training. He likes so. dates. And it's timely for me, too, because I'm trying to take fueling a little bit more seriously and um, – didn't realize how expensive it is. I mean, I, like I did, Yikes. but then, you know, like when you're actually uh, eating a ton of like space food, like outer space and gels and you know, like, can we normalize calling it space food? It's I love space that, food. It's not it food. Is. It's <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. I um, and, you know, so I was also kind of like, uh, yeah, is there like a more affordable thing? that we can do here, mm-hmm. like dates and rice. And anyway, so I've been experimenting with that too, but nice. Anyways, uh, Alex. Yeah. What, what do you think, Alex? Like, you know, being the registered dietitian, uh, is this something you would recommend or have seen or even prescribed? For yeah. Your I've actually had, um, I can think of one triathlete in particular who just needed some different options on the bike of her Ironman training. And, um, I was like, well, let's try dates, you know? And for her, she just loved him. Like, it, to her, it wasn't as sweet as some of the sports fuels, so she liked that. Um, and the only thing is, you know, reading Cato's um, <laughs> uh, question is, you know, yes, it's going to provide you with carbs, it's going to provide you with sugar, but also with dates because it's a dried uh, like stone fruit essentially is it is going to have a good amount of fiber in there too. If you're going to be consuming a lot of it on the bike, which mm-hmm. could potentially be a lot on your gut, you know, and if you're doing a really stressful high intensity ride, your gut might not be super happy with that volume of fiber and date. So I would maybe kind of mix it with some other products as well. Or I have seen um, some people do, like chopped up dates and make like kind of an energy ball with some other fueling option with it as well. Um, a little bit more prep and work for you, but yeah, absolutely. I've had lots of my own athletes have used dates just as another option to kind of cut down on the cost of the sports fuels. Cause they really are. And they add up quick. Um, when you're doing a lot of high volume training. So, so yeah, I don't think, um, they're bad for your health. Um, the one thing too, is that when, when this question was wondering if dates were a healthy way to fuel your ride, I, I always get a little leery of when people say like, I'm looking for a healthy 
option. And I'm like, well, what does healthy mean to you? Because everyone's definition is a little bit different. And sometimes I get a little concerned when people are trying to healthify their fueling during their riding, because honestly, mm-hmm. your time that you are training is not really the time to prioritize eating healthy, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. That's your time to just fuel for performance. And then the rest of the day when you're trying to recover and you're having meals and snacks, that is the time to really focus on like food quality and getting all the nutrition that you need to just support your athlete lifestyle. But I want to make sure that people are first and foremost choosing foods that are going to fuel their ride really, really well. Mm. Those are good points. I, I'm looking at it. Ivy, you kind of broke down uh, the stats of, of dates. Do you want to run through that really quick? And then. Yeah. So for a couple dates, we have 133 calories, 36 grams of carbs, 32 grams of sugar, um, and three and a half ish grams of fiber. Um, no protein, no fat. So, um, yeah, if you were doing like a really short, intense workout, I can see how like the fiber thing or eating something like this might make your stomach feel weird. But for a short, chill ride, real food like this is really nice. Um, and on the other side of it, I think like doing a really long ride with uh, either an endurance or with some intensity mix- mixed in, having to carry and eat like 20 dates would be <laughs> such a bummer for me. <laughs> like they are really sweet and, uh, yeah. you know, to just, um, yeah, get blasted with sugar like that. Like they feel sweeter than like gels sometimes to me. They're mm-hmm. yeah. Really I mean, their flavor is pretty clean though, which I kind of like, you know, there's not a lot of yeah. like, aftertaste. Um, but yeah, so 36 grams of carbs per two dates, you know, and we're looking at some athletes needing up to 90 plus grams of carb an hour. I mean, and you're six, out for six dates an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, and like a multi-hour all day ride, uh, like that's a lot of dates to be carrying. And if it's really hot out, I could see them kind of like molding all together in the bag that you're carrying them. Yeah. And so there's like some logistical things too. I think when fueling with real food is you have to be a little mindful of that as well. And here's putting that in context. So let's say that you are trying to fuel at just 90 grams an hour. So you take in roughly six dates. And if you're eating six dates, that means that you're taking in roughly half the amount of like what you should have for your daily allowance of fiber. And you're getting that in within a concentrated hour of high activity on the bike. Like you're going to have gut issues after if you're Mm going to fuel to 90 grams an hour with dates. Now, in a lot of cases, people aren't going to be feeling with just dates at 90 grams an hour. Maybe it's just, you know, they're taking in dates when it's, and this is foreshadowing for a question that we'll have later on when things perhaps aren't as intense or the carb demands aren't as high, or, you know, it's a supplement to something else. Like you're having a date, but then you're also having some other things as well. But I, um, the, I think the, the, second part of this question where it's like, are there any sort of alternatives to this? And, um, the, the criteria here is tips for cheap and high carb alternatives to gels and drink mix. The tricky part is, is that gels and drink mix, you know, you can get them very expensive, but you can also just make your own drink mix. We've talked about this many times on the podcast and you can buy the glucose and the fructose and, it can drop it down. So like a Martin gel is like $4, I think a gel, which is just crazy. It's only 20 grams of carbs. 
So if you start to look at how much that actually costs and you're trying to take in like a hundred grams of carbs, yikes, like you're already up to like $20 an hour that you're spending on the bike and just gels to get to the point where you have a hundred grams. And then, uh, but if you go to drink mix, that's also their drink mix is very expensive, similar cost per hour in terms of what you'd be taking in. But if you make your own drink mix for me, it costs somewhere. I think that I'm like, uh, if I'm taking in 120 grams an hour, I've worked it out and the price always changes on Amazon. Um, and go to my Instagram. You can see, and I need to do a video on trainer roads, Instagram for this about making your own drink mix. Um, but go to mine for the meantime and trainer roads in the future. So if you're listening to this in the past or in the future, you'll hear it there. But yeah, I think it comes down to like $4 an hour is what I spend on fueling roughly. Um, and if I was to buy in bigger, like in bulk, I could drop it down, probably even down to closer to like one to two, one to $2 an hour, um, and still be getting in a high amount of carbohydrate. So that's like the cheapest, but it's not an alternative to drink mix. And I personally haven't found just like a food option that exists. That's an alternative to drink mix that still gets me the amount of carbs I need without filling up my gut with a ton of food or bringing in other things like, you know, fiber or fat or anything else that comes in. So, uh, it's totally an option, but I'm not sure if you're going to be high carb, it's pretty tough to replace that stuff. Right. Ivy. Yeah. Um, in a drink mix for sure. Um, but yeah, thinking about the question of just dates too, I only want to add that if I'm trying to do a real food day, it's nice to mix something else kind of savory. I think I've talked about rice balls before, but that's a nice way to make sure you're not, you know, hitting like half your day's worth of fiber <laughs> on the bike. Mm-hmm. So for sure, it's a good option. Yep. And to Alex's point, it needs to be practical, like yeah, carrying it and being able to take it in do it manageably when you're doing your activity is just like, so so important. So, yeah. Um, and will it handle the weather too? You know, you're not going to want to mm. be chewing on it if it's a colder day that you're riding like in the winter or if it's 90 degrees out like it is lately. Is it going to just melt and disintegrate? Or, mm. um, I've seen some triathletes that fuel a lot with like Uncrustables on the bike and yeah. their race happens to be super, super rainy and they, it just like disintegrates in their hands and they don't get to hit it. So it's like, <laughs> no. you have yeah. to kind of think of those logistics of weather, uh, with uh-huh. your fueling options too. For sure. Yeah. I had somebody, uh, tell me recently that they bought a bunch of like salt capsules and they were like, yeah. So I like popped them all out of the packet and then I put them in my Jersey pocket Oops. and I was like, Oh boy. And they're like, yeah, and I just had a pocket full of salt. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs> the capsules, you know, dissolved with all the sweat. And I'm sure they were dealing with maybe even some <laughs> rain and, you know, sure enough. So yeah, you have to, yeah, it doesn't, you can't like scoop sweat from a, a sweaty sweat bag <sighs> from your pocket. It's disgusting. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, from Pawn. Hi, Trend Road team. Huge fan as always. Five stars on all platforms. I have Ironman World Champs niece coming up thanks to Trainer Road. Way to go. Qualifying for World Champs. That is so cool. Um, And also, what a different course than what they've had in the past. Um, Our women uh, will get to race in Kona, and we'll get to watch that, and it'll be amazing. The men are racing in Nice. I'm super excited to see a different world championship like that. If I was qualifying for world championships, I would certainly want to go to Kona, not to Nice, even though I like climbing, but Kona's Kona. So 
Uh, that's how I feel on the whole matter. It's a big <laughs> debate in the tri world, but I'm excited we get to watch two different races. It'll be cool. Uh, Pound mentions this will be my third and most likely final Ironman. So a few questions. Number one, how do I determine what gearing is appropriate for the race? I've heard Jonathan and Ivy discuss this often, but I'm not clear on how I would do this myself. For reference, I have a 5339 in the front and an 1130 in the back, and I'm debating if I should switch the front. I have 165 millimeter cranks at 3.5 watts per kilogram. So how do you plan to tackle the sense if you can't pre-read the course? Uh, actually let's cover number one first Ivy, and then we'll go into number two and then we'll go into number three. How about that? Cool. So we'll put the course profile on the screen here for viewers. Um, and for those listening on like Spotify and iTunes, you can find this on the Ironman website, but this course profile is crazy. I don't know (laughs) what the standard is or what's like normal for an Ironman, but it doesn't seem like this, this is, is it. normal. No, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely abnormal. And that's why it's getting so much attention, but mm. it's existed. You know, Ironman Nice has existed in what, you know, one form or another for years now. And it's just becoming a world championship event. They already actually had Ironman Nice earlier this year. Um, but they're going to do the race again on the, I believe the same exact course. There may be some subtle changes, but same exact, same course to mm-hmm. hold the world championships. But yeah, Ivy, it's, it does not look normal. Does it like, yeah, there's, um, 8,000 feet of elevation gain or 2,400 meters. Um, and it looks like you're doing a lot of that climbing in the first, I don't know. What do you think, John? It, it mm. finishes in the first, like 35 the or majority 40 of the climbing is yeah the majority all of happens, the climbing is done early you know yeah 60 happens kilometers in, like, in yeah know. totally um and some of that climbing looks really steep and yeah there are some like steep punches later on um especially but i do think that they should put on an easier front chain ring like i don't care if you're at six watts a kilogram um like i don't care how strong you are like doing a climb like this for 15, 20 miles, um, is going to feel really bad in a 39, what was it? 3930 is what they have. Yeah. 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 yeah, 39 would be the smallest chain ring in the front. And then a 30 would be the biggest cog that they have in the rear. And especially thinking about the duration that this will take. Like, I think that athletes probably are going to try to keep in mind not going into the red too much too early, especially, Um, so that considering, I don't know, I just, I don't see how it could hurt you, especially when thinking about the, um, what the descents look like, uh, looking at like the turns and the descent. Yeah, totally. So it's like, what will you lose by putting an easier front chain ring on? Well, you won't be able to like really, really open it up on the straight kind of downhill sections. However, I'm only really seeing one of those sections in the last, like, eight-ish miles um, Mm -hmm. because of how twisty the descending looks at miles 70-ish and 82-ish when you're really descending. I just don't know how you're going to be able to put it in the biggest gear and open it up, and I don't foresee you really spinning out in that scenario. Um, So you might lose some time in the last, you know, eight or ten miles if it's when it looks kind of straight and uh, flat or a little bit of a descent, but it's kind of what you have to, you might, you have to just kind of mitigate these losses. You could lose a lot by being in the red for the first couple hours of this ride. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or you could lose a little bit at the end because you're spun out a little bit, you know? Well, and honestly, if you're spinning out, that's a great time to just chill and tuck. Like you're already on a TT bike, you're in an aero position. You can just, you have a, you have a marathon for goodness sakes. Coming yeah, you got more racing, bud. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like it is okay to coast when mm-hmm. you are spinning out. And I think that that's like, there's this fear that like, if I spin out, I'm just losing so much time, but you're really not like, that's the sort of scenario, particularly, you know, we're talking in theory, of course, uh, this is draft or this is not drafting allowed. Right. So it's not mm-hmm. like you're going to lose a wheel in front of you as a result of this. So, uh, it really, it's okay to go easier. And Ivy, I have like a really specific way that I go about to figure out if my gearing is going to be too much or too little. You got the track um, gear chart. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, So there's two things. Number one, I get the course and then I run the course through best bike split. And then that tells me my speed that I will be carrying up climbs. And I keep that speed in mind. And then there's a tool and I bet there's other better tools. It's like the worst website ever. It's called the Sheldon Brown gear calculator, but I think people maintain it and it's like 1998 state because, you know, uh, just for like, you know, nostalgia reasons and to honor Sheldon. So Um, but I go on there and then I enter in the fact that like, like for you in this case, what I did is I threw in the fact it has 700 by 25 as an option for tires, 165 millimeter cranks and an 1130 cassette, uh, just like what you have. And then I looked at the speeds that you could hold at 80 RPM with a 39, a 37 and a 34. So what this does is that allows you to like, kind of know like, well, I don't want to be pedaling lower than 70 RPM. You can enter in whatever RPM it is. And then you can see what that speed is with your current gearing. And if that speed is not the same as what best bike split says you should be holding, if it's faster than what Mm -hmm. you should be holding, then you are going to have to push a harder gear and you're going to be drugged down and it's going to blow your legs up. So that's like a really good way to kind of figure that out. You'll also just kind of get a feel too over time that like looking at a climb and when a climb averages like 6%, you'll be like, yeah, I think I can probably hold somewhere around, you know, like 10, 11, 12 miles an hour. And it's saying that the lowest I could do is X and then you can compare it. So that's one way that you can take to really kind of take the guesswork out of whether the gearing is exactly right. But in terms of principle, I think it's almost always better to do what Ivy is saying, even if like the numbers will probably prove this right every time, but back away from the numbers and everything else, it's just a good idea to make sure that you have insurance against like super steep climbs that saved me at single track six last week of having that 32 tooth chain ring on instead of going to something bigger. And sometimes, Oh, I wanted a 26. It was just like so steep. Right. So but you, you have to, and yes, there were maybe like two moments on that entire day or entire race where I was like, man, I'm spun out and it doesn't matter. Like I just coasted in those times anyway. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it hurts the ego, but it will help your legs and help your performance. I just love that. This is so representative of how we work together and in our friendship where I'm like, yeah, it'll feel bad. Don't do that. And you're like, well, here's the math. Actually, why? Here's, <laughs> here's a calculation that I did about why, why this is true. That is us. And I'm like, yeah, feeling it's a, yeah. <laughs> but we end up in the same place. It's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Uh, the next question, which I love that you pointed out that that descent is super twisty 
Um, yeah. Because that's a key part to keep in mind. You're not going to be pinning it down that. And the question is, uh, how do you plan or tackle the sense if you can't pre-ride the course, especially in a race scenario? Uh, what advice uh, would you have in this case, Ivy? I mean, it's well, Nice. It's probably, there's probably information they could get. It's not like they're riding in an obscure area. Nice is known for, and that's like a hotbed for cyclist training, for example. Totally. So. Um, and that said, I'm not sure what it would look like to find resources or like a, something like a YouTube video or of a pre-ride or, you know, how, I don't know, an Ironman, like how well they mark the courses. Like every once in a while at a race, like if there's a really, um, there's a dangerous turn that's really, really tight in the exit or, or something, they will mark it as such and give you a heads up. And at other times they don't. So, um, yeah. Alex, what have you found like in the races you've done? And I feel like Ironman's pretty generous about their marking and like giving you information. Yeah. And even like volunteers, sometimes if it's a really sketchy, just like single spot, they'll have someone there kind of shouting, you know, like, you know, massive bump or like rough road or usually they're pretty good about that. But I've heard kind of mixed things depending on the mm -hmm. race and where you're at, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for this athlete, I think this is going to be, you know, in the question of how do you tackle the sense that you can't pre-ride? This is going to be really tough if you don't practice winding and tricky descents on your TT bike setup already, because um, what you need to pay attention to and what this athlete has five or so weeks to practice is um, how much speed you're able to scrub on your TT bike setup with, you know, the best, most effective brakes in the world that just works so well and how long. <laughs> well, <laughs> hold on here. Hopefully, hopefully they have a more modern TT bike than I have. I have one with rim brakes still and they're just noisemakers. Like you pull the brakes and you go, and like, but you still go the same speed. <laughs> it's like they don't work. It's terrible, but disc brakes now have been, and honestly, if you, I, I know that this race is coming up and is a bad idea to switch bikes beforehand, but if there was ever a course for disc brakes in a triathlon and an Ironman, this is one of them. Like, cause mm -hmm. that descent, you get so much more control, right? Ivy, like it's just, and you get more consistent braking too, which is, I feel like so crucial, um, to like you said, when in figuring out your brake distance, just disc brakes, a huge change. Right. And by the consistency, I think you mean that feeling on those rim brakes that are like on a weird mm -hmm. TT bike when, uh, it's like not breaking, not breaking, then all of a sudden grabs really quickly when mm -hmm. it finally does, you know, or start working. <laughs> if you pull and then you pull extra hard, the whole brake or frame like, like warps or bends out or something. Oh, so like my. there's a sweet spot. If you pull too hard, <laughs> oh if you pull gosh. too hard, they work less. <laughs> it's very weird. Uh, yeah. It's very odd. Yeah. 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 I need so to I get think, a new bike. <laughs> oh man. Poor John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, apart from, you know, the aspect of how to steer your TT bike just to learn how long it takes to scrub your speed. Um, like in terms of how long it takes you to slow down and what distance that looks like, like those are things that you really need to practice. And if you're not already doing that on your TT bike outside on a windy descent, you need to practice that. Um, and that's how you learn how weird it is to set up for weird winding corners on your TT bike too. Um, and so that's the best way to tackle descents that you haven't seen when you 
practice those things and you are in a race and go up to a blind corner, you want to know um, how to scrub speed and how long it will take and how you want to position yourself in the road and on your bike so that whatever that turn happens to be, however tight it is, however open it is, you're able to deal with it confidently and not let it stress you out or put yourself in a compromising position. Mm. Uh, Alex, did you a great, great advice, Ivy. I, I dig it. The, the, that's like the key thing. The fear is like, am I going to blow this turn? And that takes care of that fear. Um, mm-hmm. Alex, have you found anything that's helped you get more, like what's helped you get more comfortable? Um, uh, yeah, I know you haven't raced at world champs or something like that, but at the same time, this is relevant to all of us. Like, have you done anything or did you find anything helpful in getting comfortable, um, on descending turns, all that stuff? So when I trained for Ironman Wisconsin, I was actually living in Winona, Minnesota, which is a very hilly area of the state. There's like bluffs. It's like right along Mm. the Mississippi. And so I did a lot of hill repeats on um, a fairly safe road. I had a really nice wide shoulder. Um, There's a really well-known climb in Winona. It's on Garvin Heights Road. It's like a top 100 ride, but... It's so windy and the traffic just flies down it. It's just not safe to bike up and do hill repeats on. So I would do a little bit different road, which had similar elevation, but I just practiced a lot of descent and then climbing back up. I would do that like three, four or five times each week just to get comfortable because with Ironman Wisconsin's course, it's constantly up and down and there are some windy sections there. So I felt pretty comfortable and granted this was... 2014, I still have my tri- bike on the wall. It has rim mm-hmm. brakes. So when you're saying your bike is ancient, I'm like, yep, same here, like rim yeah. brakes and, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I made it work and mm-hmm. it was fine. Um, but I also didn't have kids at the time. So I feel like I might be a little bit more cautious just from like that self-preservation <laughs> mode of descents, you know, going down 40 miles an hour, um, maybe a little bit different mindset yeah. this time around. Um, changes that when you it have does kids, it sure. does change a little bit yeah and I will say you know this wasn't part of the question but it's funny how you guys are analyzing this course from a you know chain rings perspective I'm like sitting here studying like the fueling perspective of how I would fuel this race course <laughs> of like okay you've got between kilometers 40 and 60 a pretty intense climb so I'm like all right, you're getting out of the water. I would start fueling immediately and pretty heavily sure. so that you're going into that climb really well fueled. And then probably during that climb, I would be just using liquid hydration in like an aero bottle. So I could be still taking in some fuel and hydration during that climb. And then once you're at the top, it's, you know, free for all in terms of fueling. Mm-hmm. And then in that technical decline, you're probably not going to be fueling a lot because you're going to be. It's true so focused on bike handling. So from a nutrition perspective, it's really important to study the race course in where is the ideal time to hit the fueling harder versus where you're going to not have opportunities to do that. Yeah. I kind of see it from like, I don't know, a kilometer hundred, somewhere around there. Like you're not going to drink, you're not going to be able to take a nutrition until you get down to that flat section Mm -hmm. at the end and then at that point, you'll really want to make sure that you're taking in fuel because you're coming into the run. So yeah, yeah and I really wouldn't take point. a lot of solid fuel at that point because you don't want mm-hmm. a really full stomach starting out the run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. 
The one thing that I, uh, the suggestion that I would have on the descending part is play a lot of video games. Like honestly, in between now and then, play a game like Forza or Gran Turismo. Your Mario these, Kart. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> Maybe not Mario Karts. So then you know you think you're gonna get hit by a turtle a shell in descent or something. Yeah. Banana. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Gran Turismo and Forza, those games, they have, um, and I'm not a big gamer, so somebody could probably like give me maybe like I'm using the wrong nomenclature, but they have this like ideal line that they can draw on the screen as you're driving. And it just, and if you do that, watch Formula One, watch MotoGP, uh, watch ski racing, surround yourself with good line choice, like cerebrally, like, you know, and if you start to do that, you'll start to recognize patterns. And then when you get out onto the race course, it makes it way more automatic. But honestly, probably the most effective way to do it is to play like a racing game, uh, some sort of sim style racing game that gives you that option to enable, like, show me the line choice. It's hugely beneficial. Um, and I think that that's something when you're talking about a bike that isn't going to handle well brakes that hopefully, like Ivy said, you figured that part out, but your bike still isn't going to handle well because it's a TT bike. It's going to be chattery in turns. If it's bumpy, it's going to be a bit flexy and unpredictable. It'll want to understeer, meaning that like, if you really like are carving a turn hard, it's not going to want to hold that line. It's always going to want to push slightly outside. So you have a bike that is going to insert some variables. So at least take care of the biggest variable that has, you know, or second biggest braking is number one, but line choice. If you can make sure that you're just setting up for turns appropriately to allow yourself the most space possible, that's really going to increase your exit speed. We talked about this with cyclocross last week with Tobin, and we were talking about how you need to prioritize your exit speed. And many times to do that, you need to be okay with not jamming into a corner and slamming on your brakes because then you're going to have to reaccelerate a lot. But instead it's finding the best line that you can come in, maybe a bit slower, but then what you do is you're able to maintain a higher average speed throughout that whole corner just by coasting. And that's definitely what you'd want to find in this case on the TT bike. Um, depending on the speed too, and depending, you know, who knows, like in this case, we might have an incredible descender on our hands that we're talking to here, Powell, I don't know. And if you're comfortable descending in the arrow position, doing all that stuff, this is probably not the time to be down in the arrow position on a blind descent if you haven't ridden it yet. So it's, it's the time to get out of that. And then just to get yourself in a position where you can react to unexpected things. Um, so that's just, uh, yeah, I would say there the third question. This one is a bit more less like concrete here. It says, and finally, somewhat of a different question, but how do I deal with the idea that I may be at my lifelong peak from a fitness perspective and it may be all downhill from here and with a slightly sad face afterward. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, man, I, you know, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you in this case, Palm, but uh, I wonder what has led to that thought, uh, first of all. Um, and where that was sewn. Um, and to be clear, I'm, you know, the majority of you listen to this podcast are probably over like 30 years old or something else. Maybe all of us are past our like physiological perfect peak potential, but that doesn't mean that we're past our performance potential with our peak. Like we can probably still improve that. Ivy, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Like how do you deal with bad workouts when that happens? If you have that mentality, you know? You're not it's always going to be like, getting <laughs> yeah. faster all the time. And like, is racing fun? You're getting older and training is harder and you're 
slowly declining in your peak. Like I say this with so much kindness, like you're not special. All of us get older <laughs> and like, you know, like this is not something that you are uh, experiencing yourself and there's something wrong with you. Oh, it happens to all of us. And it happens also in the middle of our careers when we are physiologically supposed to be at our peak. Sometimes like stuff goes sideways and we aren't peaking and dude, you, you're not, you don't get to have fun and enjoy training and racing because of those things. Like who cares? You know, yeah. if you like training and racing and enjoy it, do it because you like those things and not, and don't not do it because you're not as fast as you used to be. It doesn't mean that you don't get to be enriched and enjoy the training and racing process because you weren't as fast as you used to be. That's whack. Mm. Old people race all the time. I can't wait to race when I'm like 80. <laughs> That's That's yeah. There's so many fabulous athletes that are in their 50s and 60s, especially cycling. I mean, they're mm -hmm. so strong and they're keeping up with the the youngins. Dude, so, I mean, my mom is I, a like 60 year old cat one. Like, she's bonkers. Right? Like, it's, it's so sick. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, age uh, is just a number when it comes to endurance sports. Yeah. I agree. There's, so there's, if you're talking, so for me, I've passed my peak, like my potential peak in terms of when I could have reached the absolute performance potential of myself. It would have been when I was younger. It would have been a lot of training. And there's so many what ifs that it's just irrelevant, right? It doesn't even matter because uh, those what ifs aren't reality. And that's not what it was. Uh, but I, so I get motivation in the short term and the long term from two different things. So in the short term, I get motivation of trying to, to execute amidst complicated circumstances. That's like really motivating to me. Like I managed to get it done and get my training done. And that feels great to me. And I'm motivated by the training. I uh, do not focus on my placement relative to other people. Uh, that I did of course a ton when I was younger and I've learned over time that that is a really hard, that's really hard to maintain like a lifelong relationship with sport if you're doing that. And within that is also your own relationship to yourself. Are you constantly racing your personal best? And if so, then yes, in this situation, you're going to become demotivated over time because clearly we've all had days when we were just on a flyer and it was perfect or a year or a couple years where just life allowed us to be really, really fast. And now your life has changed and it evolves and it's different and you may not be able to do that. And it's different circumstances. So it's akin to comparing somebody's, you know, TT performance on a course when it was a blowing headwind and a blowing tailwind. Like you would never compare that because it's irrelevant because the circumstances are different. Well, your life has even more variants and circumstances that have even more impact on your performance. So you just can't compare yourself so heavily and so strictly to yourself in the past. Now for me, and, and you can't always compare yourself to when you're training for an Ironman as well, because that's like mm. such a unique time of your life. And if he's not going to do any more Ironmans, that's okay. You know, you can shift to a different way of still being active in fitness. And I would say from a nutrition perspective, make sure that you're not continuing to try to eat like an Ironman because people <laughs> can't make that switch usually really quickly. It kind of takes some intentional planning. So in order to prevent that like unwanted weight gain that can come on really quickly, if you continue eating like an Ironman, um, I would just be a little mindful about that as well so that you really feel like 
you're going downhill mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of uh, fitness and body composition. Yep. You're going to, if you compare to yourself, you're always going to be like, have reason to be frustrated. Um, and instead, if you just focus on like the relationship you have with sport in the now, and it's like how in my training and every day is like a new challenge that you're taking on and you're moving through with that perspective, that's way more sustainable. And you're going to discover really cool things where you may not climb as fast, or you may not do one thing as fast. You may not TT as fast in that position, something like that. But other aspects of your game have improved over the years. And as a result, you actually end up having a better performance, like a net positive in the end. So you'll learn a lot of different things as long as you can maintain that relationship with sport in a healthy spot that allows you to carry motivation and be consistent. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't see it being helpful to think that like, and maybe I'll downhill from here because yeah, like, you know, none of us, you know, your, your peaks probably in your twenties. And at that point, you know, you could say it's all downhill from there, but it's really not because you probably are on some sort of Olympic trajectory where you've been trained up to peak and in your twenties. Um, and even then I'm sure Olympians, uh, that there are a lot of Olympians that struggle with something like this. And there are a lot of of examples of Olympians that maintain their relationship with sport and find new motivations within it. So it's all, it's all about what you're doing right now and where your focus is. Yeah. And I hope that saying, you know, they said earlier, this is going to be my last, uh, I, did they say Ironman or Ironman world championship? I hope they're not saying that because they think they're just getting older. Who cares? You know, keep, (laughs) if you enjoy this process and enjoy training and racing and it's fulfilling and fun, uh, keep doing it. Don't just resign yourself to it's over because I'm getting old. Keep going, you know? Yes. Or do a shorter distance. That's more doable for your lifestyle and, and time management as well. I mean, there's That's, nothing wrong with doing sprint or Olympic or 70.3s. You don't have to do the full all the time. Yeah. Amen. That's a cool part about triathlon. So, mm-hmm. uh, cool. All right. Uh, good luck pound and everybody else that's going to be racing at Ironman world championships later this year. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, Proud of you. Sorry. Yeah. I said, you're not special. You are. That's really admire. That's <laughs> <laughs> you are. That was, that's really cool that you're going to the world championships. Proud she of you. Hammers them down and lifts them back up. <laughs> yeah. Wait, just kidding. I love you. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Al says, Hey guys, love your podcast, especially when you dive deep. I love your product too. And, uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy using it slash suffering. Um, okay. My question is about cooling yourself during a hot activity. Is there a benefit to dispensing water on your legs? I've seen many pro cyclists pour water on their head and back, and it makes sense as the cooling effect and the influence on the body is greater, but I'm considering I have enough water. Will I benefit from also quote watering my legs? Um, so I'm, I, this is one that's really interesting to me. And if you go to our Instagram recently, Sarah actually pulled from a review that looked into this very thing. Um, and she was looking into this as in terms of like why Tour de France athletes were using athletes were using, uh, ice vests. And it seems like, Oh yeah, to lower their core temp. Well, it turns out it doesn't really lower your core temp effectively to the point where like it would be beneficial for them. Uh, it may slow some core temp increasing a little bit, but above all, it just changed RPE and it was really cool. Anyways, go check out Sarah's video on that. But I looked at that review and then another review. So the two reviews, and these are quite easy to read in terms of research. So I'd recommend checking them out. We'll link down below. 
Uh, but the one that I want to talk about specifically for this one is uh, per cooling, or in other words, using cooling systems during physical exercise enhances physical and cognitive performances in hot environments and narrative review from Dozi et al. in 2020. And that's D-O-U-Z-I. Uh, but again, we'll link down below to it. Um, so this, this really looked into a handful of different things that, that you could use during activity and wanted to see if those improve performance. They looked at a bunch of different studies that tracked things like time to exhaustion, core temperature, RPE, lots of different things. And then they brought it together in this review to look at it. So here are the things that they tested. Cooling garments, in other words, we're talking like um, clothes themselves that are cold, not just necessarily a cooling vest, but the clothes themselves that are cold. Cold water immersion, uh, and that's like, you know, amidst the activity, like you'll, you know, they douse you with cold water, or you go into cold water, and then you just keep running or keep cycling. Ice slurry ingestion, which is basically a slushy, cold fluid ingestion, which is just cold water, cold packs placed on the body strategically, a cooling vest, an ice vest. So that's like a different one. The cooling vest just like cool you down. They typically have some sort of mesh and they're saturated. The ice vests actually have ice within them. A ventilated vest and then water spray, which this is, that's the relevant one to what you're asking. And then also looked at just fanning or air ventilation. And the long story short of this review is, and it's quite logical. All of these things did indeed improve one measure of performance or another, Almost all of them did not reduce core temperature other than ingesting cold fluids. That's the best way to drop core temperature. And there's this whole concept with cooling yourself that you have your skin and then you have, and it's kind of like the outside shell of the gobstopper, if you will. And then the in, inner part is your what? body's core. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Ivy. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. That was such a specific reference that just made me really happy. Uh, uh, good. I'm glad I made okay, you. I'm just thinking of something with layers. Okay. So, um, onion. You could say yeah, onion, onion, but you go. were like, you're like, no, I'm going to find the most niche candy. <laughs> <laughs> then, like, I don't know. I love onions it. Onions are, yeah. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather eat a gobstopper than an onion. Anyways, I'm getting sidetracked here. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. But the point is that if you cool the outermost layer, it creates like this temperature gradient that could allow heat to be shed from your core. Um, because then what it could do is it could allow more heat to pass through and, and, and come out of your body. So that's the whole concept behind that. We, when I did the cryotherapy video that's up on our YouTube channel, you should go check it out. I tested out like whole body cryotherapy. That's the whole premise behind that. When you're talking about being outside in a hot environment, most likely, uh, and you're also creating a bunch of heat actively from inside your muscles, when you're doing all of that, it's very different than just sitting in a cold tank or sitting in a cryo tank or anything else like that. This is like a very different environment. And that cooling of the outside of your skin, when you have the sun on you and when it's hot, it doesn't do a whole lot to actually change core temp like it does when you're in a cryotherapy situation. However, in every situation, athletes reported lower RPE whenever they had cooling um, methods per cooling methods applied to them. And that lower RPE in most cases led to like greater times to exhaustion. In other words, it extended their ability to perform at a given level. And that's simply just because their RPE, they felt cooler. So that is, if you're looking for the scientific reasoning, spraying water on your body, isn't actually likely to drop your core temp when you're training outside or in a hot environment. 
However, it will make you feel cooler and as a result, allow you to perform longer at that given power, perform perhaps a little higher, but really the research just points to time to exhaustion extension um, and RPE lowering for, for athletes like that. So that's really why you would want to do that. Now, in this case, this study looked at like spraying, it wasn't very specific, but it looked at spraying over the face and head, kind of like what you mentioned there. And we do vent a lot of heat from there. But in terms of watering your legs or spraying your legs, it's really, again, we're talking about RPE. Um, there's, so there's two things to keep in mind. Number one, where does your body vent a lot of heat? And that's where you're talking about, and you can usually find it, where do you sweat most? And that's typically where your body is also going to vent a lot of heat. So that's why you'd want to cool down those areas. Um, I feel like you don't see enough athletes cooling off like their armpits or their crotch or anything else like their neck. And even though we usually do it on our face. And I think it's because so much of our perception is tied into our face and what's going on there. So there's the cooling part in terms of where your body vents the most heat. You'd want to cool that off. But also, again, to the face part, where do you feel most hot? And in many cases, your face is going to feel extremely hot or the working muscles themselves are going to feel extremely hot. Or perhaps you're just really tied into how your leg muscles feel because you're pedaling really hard. So if you can cool off in those areas, it can help. And yes, this is absolutely placebo effect that we're talking about. And this is a great example of how the placebo effect is real and has impact. Like if your muscles are feeling hot, you're probably going to get relief when you can cool them off. And that's why you spray them. Um, so the, the last thing that I wanted to share on this is that you'll see this particularly in mountain biking, cross country mountain biking is they can get multiple bottles each lap and they're doing somewhere between like six to eight laps typically in these cross country Olympic races, and they might have multiple feed zones. So in those situations, you'll see them grab bottles and pay attention closely. You'll see bottles typically will have like three different colored caps or two different colored caps. And those indicate to the athlete, which ones they would want to drink and then which ones they'd want to pour over themselves. Cause it'd be a bummer to just pour a bunch of like super dense carb mix over you and you just get really sticky and it would be gross. Um, and that's in this case, they're pouring water over. Now I want to take it one step further and broach and breach perhaps responsibility here. So, uh, I'm going to like say that, like, I, I bear no responsibility. If anybody does this, I've simply heard of it happening and there is no science directly that backs this up at extending performance. Um, back in like 2015, I remember watching a world cup and I can't even remember which athlete it was, but they grabbed one of the bottles and they squirted into their mouth and they instantly just like tossed the bottle and were coughing. And they looked really like very unpleasant. And then they ended up DNFing the next lap. Um, and I remember everyone was like, what did that like? Like, why did that happen? There are rumors of athletes using alcohol, like rubbing alcohol in bottles that they squeeze on their bodies and just using that for an aid in an increased cooling effect. However, I want to like discuss this one because the perception is that, well, first of all, it evaporates faster than just water. So the concept is that if, if it evaporates faster, it could quote, pull out heat faster. Um, and this is actually something that like way back in the day, they used to use alcohol for fevers because if you put it on like your skin, then it could feel like it was evaporating quickly and relieving your fever really quickly. However, that effect lasts for a very short period of time. 
There's also like fears of it, even like, you know, we're talking extreme cases here. Like if you're like full body, like up to your neck, just like sitting in it for a long time, probably you could get alcohol poisoning in theory from just like too much alcohol on your skin. Cause you absorb things in one way or another transdermally. But this is something that I have heard of. However, I don't think that it's very common in terms of spraying stuff on your body to use anything other than water. Um, but, and I don't think that it would be safe. And the big thing is if you get that mixed up, boy, that would be a bummer to take a mouthful Yeesh. of rubbing alcohol <laughs> instead of, you know, in a race, in a race setting too, you know, that they took, you know, at least a big gulp and a half before big really gulp. realizing what was happening. <laughs> oh, Can no. you imagine? Oh man. So, uh, if you, if you have done that or do, if you've done that, you know, reach out to the podcast and let us know. Um, I wonder if that's why. A lot of riders, you'll see them have like three to four different colored caps on their bottles, you know, and maybe that's how they keep them straight. I don't know. But uh, anyways, it's interesting, just the same. Um, uh, but yeah, that's why uh, you would do it. But there's no real like kind of performance reason to back it up. And the one thing to keep in mind, and Alex, this kind of dovetails, I think, into a point that you'd want to make on this is that spraying something on your body is all good and fine. But if you're doing that instead, and if, again, we're assuming it's not rubbing alcohol here, but if you're doing that and then instead of spraying it into your body and you're becoming dehydrated as a result, then that's like not a good idea. I would, wouldn't you think that it would be better to first prioritize hydration instead of just using it for cooling? Yeah. Dehydration really is going to wreak havoc on your body being able to just regulate body temp. So, um, Understanding your fluid losses, practicing that ideal hydration rate during training so that you can go to race day and it's just second nature for you to be consuming what you need to be, having an understanding of your sodium losses. I mean, we just had um, some uh, test results come back for one of our ultra runners and she's losing 1200, 1300 milligrams of sodium an hour and a little over a liter of fluid an hour. And I'm like, yeah, she probably wasn't consuming that much. And that's probably why she was DNFing in her, her hundred mile races. And so, um, yeah, you really need to make sure that you've got the basics down before you start getting into the technical, like fancy cooling equipment and whatnot, Mm -hmm. because sometimes the basics are going to be your saving grace as well. And I have seen even some athletes where they just start prioritizing hydration better and they feel immensely better as they're finishing that workout. Um, it really does make truly a difference and something to think about too, just physiologically when our body starts getting overheated from whether it's dehydration, our digestive system will basically shut down and kind of Mm -hmm. like really slow down. And that's where you, when you hear people say like, Oh, my stomach just felt so bloated. It didn't feel like it was emptying. I'm like, yeah, it's because you're getting overheated and Mm -hmm your body's trying to basically survive and stay alive. And the digestive system just is a lower priority at that point. And so you have to slow down. You have to get yourself rehydrated, cooled off so that things start moving along again and you can finish. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like you're, if you're taking in a super, like if you're a hundred grams per hour sort of person and you're taking that in all the time and then you show up to a really hot event and you're not used to it, you should probably back it down from a hundred grams per hour, even like proactively just anticipate yeah. t- that you will take in less, right? Alex? Yeah. Keep an eye on your heart rate. If your heart rate gets exponentially higher than what it usually is, you're going to want to, um, 
slow down a bit, get it back down so that your digestive system keeps moving along. Um, because once it stops, you're not going to be able to take hydration or uh, fuel in and have it actually like move anywhere and get used, which is, and then it just kind of all goes downhill f- at that point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, in a race, I typically prefer to take my own hydration and nutrition on board and then aid stations. I almost always ask them for water and I just pour water on myself from that aid station. That's, and that's what like, I like to do too, personally. The, yeah. That way I don't compromise the fueling strategy, um, you know, to, to cool off. So uh, okay, Roland's question says, and by the way, if you have a question for this podcast, you can submit it at trainerroad.com slash podcast. That's how this podcast has gone to 433 episodes. It's all riding on your questions, which is just fantastic. It's pretty darn cool. So uh, continue that. We'd appreciate it. Uh, whatever questions you have about how to get faster. Roland says, thanks for all the info and discussions. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and finally started training with Trainer Road in February, and I'm seeing some initial great gains. Unfortunately, I've had a setback due to travels and longer sickness, but I'm more motivated to get ready for events in November and December. Good on you, Roland. Again, training's a journey and it's like a dance with life. It just, you know, it it ebbs and flows and that's how we, how we do it. So following the talks on nutrition in the podcast and the science of getting faster podcast, Recommended amounts of carbs for high intensity workouts and races is clear. I am wondering that's when we're talking about taking in, you know, 90 grams or even upwards of 90 grams an hour. I am wondering whether there are recommendations on how much less one should take in during a less intense workout or a recovery ride. I don't think you'd recommend to take in 80 grams of carbs per or more per hour on just any ride. So would you, uh, so I would be really interested to know how you handle this yourselves. Is there a rule of thumb based on intensity factor, normalized power, target power zone, or total TSS per workout? Example, if the IF is 0.5 or 50% of FTP, do you just take in 50% of what you would take on an intense workout? So many thanks for, for your thoughts and on this and your answers and to all the other submissions. So, uh, Alex, there's probably standardized guidelines, um, with this mm-hmm. that you could share. And then I think that we could probably have like a more nuanced discussion IV about like how you manage it and, and stuff and, and how I've managed it. Yeah. So, um, I have like in my office here behind me, I have a whole bunch of like sports nutrition textbooks. And so, um, we have our standard guidelines and then there's always like exceptions to the rules and caveats on how to adjust things. But here's, here's the guidelines. So if you, and it's all about time, like length duration of your workout is how we kind of break it up. So if you're doing a workout that is under 45 minutes, probably not needing to refuel with carbs during. So that's, Around the 45 minute mark is typically where, um, we're just like, yeah, you're, it's a shorty workout, you know, just focus on hydration. That's the priority there. If it's 45 minutes to 75 minute workout up to 30 grams of carb per hour is the guideline. And then from that anywhere, one hour to two and a half hour workout, we're looking at anywhere from 30 to 60 grams. So you kind of have a range there. And then really that two and a half hour plus uh, exercise, you're looking at that 80 to 90 grams Mm -hmm. of carbon hour. That being said, so there's exceptions, right? Like if it's a higher intensity workout, you're likely going to burn through that glycogen a lot faster and burn through the fuel that you're taking in. So you might want to be on the higher end of the range or, you know, dial it up a notch. Did you fuel well before the workout? Are you going into the workout a little bit hungry or potentially, you know, maybe you worked a really long shift yesterday and you didn't get to eat as much and you're kind of going into your 
even if it's a recovery ride with potentially a lower muscle glycogen store. You might want to take in a little fuel, even if it's, you know, a 45 minute, an hour easy workout, just to like have your bases covered. Um, you know, like those are kind of the caveats that I think about um, when going into things. And the other aspect too is, let's say right now in your training block, you're not at that two and a half hour mark in duration, but you know you're going to be getting there. Maybe fueling yourself at a little bit higher rate so that once you get there, your body and gut is adapted to being able to handle that is a really good strategy if you know you're going to be progressing to a longer duration training and you're going to be needing to fuel more too and you're just not quite adapted to that level yet. Yeah, it's a super important recommendation. And with these two, I think a lot of this is based on like a person should have enough glycogen on board to be able to complete a 45 minute workout. And then like, as it goes and so you have to ask yourself, like, are you trying to like satisfy the minimum or are you trying to make it so that you can have enough carbohydrates so you can hit it again tomorrow amidst your crazy busy life. And that's like the, that's the big thing that I've noticed. And Reckoning this with something like, you know, the uh, top elite athletes that are taking in 160 and upwards grams of hour or grams of carbs per hour. I know they're not following these recommendations, but they have number one, they're burning a huge amount of calories. They've trained their body to be able to process and utilize a lot of carbohydrate in that state as well. And as a result, it's all beneficial toward performance. And again, back to your point, Alex, it's like, um, on the bike isn't a spot where you have to worry. That's like not where you should be trying to split hairs and, and find the lowest, how little can I fuel to be able to get by? That's not the point on the bike. Mm-hmm. That's where you want to be focusing on feeling the work. Um, but I, but it does vary depending on the day for me, Ivy, what do you do? Typically you mentioned that you're trying to improve in this very point, but, um, Mm -hmm. so maybe it's like, what are your aspirations and where are you at now? I don't know where, where you're at with it. Well, the reason the things that I'm working on are nutrition on the bike, but then setting myself up better throughout the day prior to workout, um, even an easy ride. And so the reason that I don't use some sort of calculation, like, okay, if this is the IF for the workout, then this is how much I need today because how I set myself up the day prior and day of depends so much upon what I feel like I need specifically in the beginning of a ride. Um, like if I really nailed nutrition day before all morning, then I, you know, might not need to front load as much in the beginning of that ride. Like I would, if I messed up and I missed that three hour window of eating before a hard workout and I needed to, I need to try to, you know, make sure I front load that workout and take in more than I would in the beginning. Um, or even, even like easy stuff. Um, I know it's an easy workout. I know it's just an hour spin, but if I let myself get hungry on that ride and grumpy, um, and the rest of my day is just derailed. And if I need to go back to work or be productive for the rest of the day, I won't be able to. And so, um, that's another reason why I don't have this, you know, like you're talking about this minimum effective dose approach because, um, there's so much that needs to happen outside of training for me that, uh, if I, if I overdo it and have a little bit too much and don't finish the ride starving and depleted, that's only a good thing for me. Mm. This is like the, 
I, I feel like I'm really good at falling out of the habit of eating. And then I'm also really good at pushing myself toward habits of deprivation and thinking that because I didn't take anything in that that's somehow good. And all of my past experience points to that being terrible, yet it doesn't stop my brain for some reason for <laughs> like striving for that. And I bet I'm not alone. So for me, even when I am doing a recovery ride and it's 30 minutes, I, every single ride and every hour of every ride I am eating and I'm trying to establish that habit and that pattern. So then that way, when it comes to more important days, it's a part of how I operate. My body's used to taking in food on the bike. It's used to processing that. And then I, I like have built up this pattern that just takes care of itself. So <clears throat> that's something that I really strive for. And as, and to Alex's point as I'm getting closer to my events, <clears throat> I, I know this might sound crazy to somebody, but if it's an easy one hour recovery ride, I'm still going to fuel that thing at a hundred grams an hour because number one, I'm burning more than that on a recovery ride. But number two, uh, so I, in other words, I'm not looking at like maintaining a balance there. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm not hangry, like uh, Ivy is saying, right. <laughs> and that I'm actually giving myself enough fuel to carry on afterward. <laughs> but then number two, I want to make sure that my body knows how to take that stuff in. And no matter what the intensity ends up being on race day, like in a road race, for example, you might have a five hour race and four out of five hours are chill and boring. And then the fifth hour is so full gas. And then as a result, you know, if you haven't been fueling because it was chill and it was boring and it wasn't hard, you're going to show up at that fifth hour and just be completely empty. Like you have to, you have to kind of decouple it and just have like a strategy that you stick to regardless of the intensity and everything else is what I would recommend to, as Ivy said. Now, having said all of that, there are totally days where I go out and it's like just an easy spin, something like that. And instead of taking in like a bottle of drink mix, I'll take in like liquid IV and like a little snack or something else. Like it'll vary. Really. The only thing that changes for me in terms of the intensity is like the composition of what I'm eating. Like I might eat one of those delicious little like cherry pie things on a day where the <laughs> intensity isn't too high. But then when I get into days where it's like, you know, tempo and above, those are the days that I'm like, all right, I'm distilling this. I'm just going to go to sugar and salt. So I'm just going to have my drink mix or gels and that's it. And it just makes it a whole lot more simple. And that way my stomach, it makes it easier to process too. I don't have to deal with a lot of fat or fiber or complications that can come in with different ingredients. So that's the only thing I change is just, you know, based on how intense it is, I might get away with uh, some gas station food. If yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really important for people to understand that the minute you finish your workout, that doesn't mean that you stop needing carbs. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's not a matter of like, uh, like, oh, I'm done working out. I, I can shut off my fueling strategy. Like, <laughs> then you shift to the recovery and carbs are needed for that recovery. I think people really underestimate how much energy it requires to really efficiently and effectively recover from some of these workouts, especially when they're day after day after day. And so, yeah, you might be doing a, a shakeout run or a shakeout ride, but um, you still need to think about, well, tomorrow's going to be really hard. This is my light workout just to prep me for tomorrow's hard one. I'm going to feel a little bit more today to prep for that, right? So you have to be very mindful of that. And to your point, Jonathan, about, you know, it's really easy to get into that restrictive mindset. Like, our brains have truly been conditioned based off of just the diet culture of the past 30 years. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just been totally. so brutal. So making sure that if you're really struggling with that mindset, think about who are you spending your time with? Are they someone that are constantly talking about their weight and dieting? What kind of accounts do you follow on social media? Do you need to change that up to being something that's more mm. um, body inclusive, more p- promoting, you know, fueling over restricting, making sure that you're starting to try to recondition your mindset and being aware of that can be really helpful too, to just get into that habit better of fueling more. Mm. Yeah, really great. A fantastic perspective, Alex. It's awesome. Ready to move on to Lauren's question? Uh, she says, Hey coaches, thanks for the fantastic podcast content. It helps, or it's helped me learn a ton about this adult onset activity of cycling. And I enjoy it so much because of all the helpful tips and information. Thanks Lauren. Appreciate that. I wonder if Lauren found that through a rating of the podcast or a friend sharing the podcast. That's how you can help us. So, <laughs> uh, rate the podcast on Spotify, share it with others. That would be huge. Uh, thank you. We appreciate all of you says, I'm having a weird nutrition problem that I'm hoping Alex Larson can help with. And I hope the discussion could help other athletes too. Over the last 10 years, I've gone through what seems like every possible diet. Looking back with more perspective, I was never overweight, but I was just going from one diet to the next because of societal pressures. In other words, I felt like I should always be dieting and I could always be skinnier. Like most people, I found that one of the restrictive diets quote worked or that none of the restrictive uh, diets quote worked long-term. But the concerning issue I'm dealing with now is that even though it's been nearly a year since I was on a diet, my metabolism seems weird. The final two diets I was on for the last year were low carb ketogenic diets, and they left me with absolutely zero energy since dropping those and going to a more traditional food pyramid quote, fuel your training approach. My energy has rebounded some, but I don't feel like I get enough energy from my food. For example, on days where I do a 60 minute workout, I feel so drained that it's hard for me to carry the rest of life's responsibilities, making dinner, bath time, story time, etc. So info about me. I have a really low FTP and that's in, that's right here in Lauren's words of 120 Watts. Lauren, that's not really low. Um, particularly if, you know, we're looking at this split by gender and everything else, that's not really low. So my FTP is 120 Watts. Uh, I take in one goo or a honey stinger waffle or a couple of shot blocks per hour. So it sounds like those are mutually exclusive. It's like one gel or a waffle or a couple shot blocks. Uh, the next bit, uh, we have four kids and my husband has a long commute and demanding job. So I more or less run all the family operations. I typically start my day with some yogurt and toast, then work out two hours later, then have an athletic green smoothie after with some protein powder, then a sandwich for lunch. And then dinner is a typical food pyramid meal. Um, so Alex, this is kind of like a breakdown of like, this is what I, this is probably not dissimilar from what you see from clients. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts when you look at this when like a lot of dieting for years and what I say by dieting is like following at least in Lauren's terms, restrictive diets and feeling like Lauren's just not getting enough energy now to be able to carry on with all of life's responsibilities. So what stands out to you? Oh, I've got lots of thoughts here, but first of all, like Lauren, uh, the struggle is real as a mom, like I'm almost (laughs) a mom, almost a mom of three. And I'm just like, Ooh, this is going to be a lot. And so, um, and it is exhausting mentally to have that be the main person responsible for four kids when your husband has a busy schedule. So, um, you know, I feel for you, like it really is tough. And so 
Definitely prioritizing yourself and your fueling will not only help your workouts and improve your FTP, but also it's just going to help you be a better mom and be more functional throughout the day. So a few things before I get into the diet side of things is um, sleep. And this may be just out of your control at this period of life with kids, depending on how old they are and their sleep schedules. Um, but it does typically get better um, as they get older and you can get yourself into a better sleep routine. That's just huge to allow yourself to recover mentally and physically as a mom and an athlete. Um, but I'd also have your ferritin levels checked. That's your iron stores. Um, that was something I actually recently had checked myself um, and they were embarrassingly low. And I was like, Oh, no wonder I've been so tired. And so like, I'm like, well, no excuse. Now I know I need to make sure I'm taking an iron supplement, eating iron rich foods and getting the ferritin level back up to something that will just help support me because no matter how well you're fueling, if your ferritin levels are really low, you're not going to be feeling your best. So that would be something I would definitely just reach out to your doctor and say, Hey, I'd love some lab work. I really want my, my ferritin levels checked maybe even vitamin D, just making sure that those levels are not holding you back as well from feeling your best as an athlete and a mom. And then yes, from the diet part, um, you know, I'd have to look into what she's meaning by her metabolism is weird, but she's not the first uh, female athlete to come to me and say my metabolism is messed up or it's, mm. it's wonky. And a lot of that is from just years of chaotic, restrictive dieting, trying them all. Like it really does take a toll on your body. It's really stressful in your body to go through all of those drastic changes in diets. And especially when they're really restrictive and you're trying to exercise on top of that, like it, it really um, takes honestly months of getting back to a normal balanced eating pattern for, especially for women, hormones to regulate back to normal, for your gut health to improve, all of those types of things. It takes some time for your body to adapt back to kind of that happy space again. So, um, and it doesn't look, always just automatically happen, right, Alex? In the sense no, that, like, it, it you takes can't just some- expect to just continue as normal. In, in many cases, you need to go out and seek intervention through like working with dietitians or working with like getting labs done and figuring like you kind of have to force the change rather than just expecting your body to find stasis once again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some female athletes where we're looking at six to 12 months before they really start to return back to like a nice, healthy metabolism, hormones, regulated gut health. Like all of that is just in a good spot. It does take time depending on how long they've been dieting. I mean, I've seen some athletes where they've been dieting since they were, 14 years old and they're mm-hmm. in their forties. I mean, it's really impacted a huge part of their life and it's a lot, it's not a quick fix to just get back mm-hmm. to having a, a healthy metabolism again. So just keep that in mind. You have to be a little patient. You kind of have to play the long game and chip at it slowly. Like make sure you're sleeping well, make sure you're eating enough, make sure your ferritin levels are good. Other labs, um, And looking at, you know, what she said she's eating, she's not eating enough, like a yogurt and toast. And then working out two hours later, like that, she's got to have a bigger breakfast. Um, A smoothie, protein smoothie afterwards is great, but just a sandwich for lunch, not enough. 
You know what I mean? It's got to be a bigger meal than that. Um, and her dinner probably is um, pretty substantial. It sounds like it's just a, a full, you know, family meal, which is great. But um, I definitely like our athletes to front load their nutrition earlier on in the day um, because that's just going to energize you for the rest of your day. So having a good solid breakfast, and if you have two hours until you're going to work out, you can have a pretty substantial breakfast of um, yogurt, toast, I'd put like maybe an avocado and an egg on that, you know, like get some healthy fats, get some like, I'd say 20 to 30 grams of protein at breakfast. You have two hours to digest that, have a good workout. Um, I'm glad she's fueling, you know, during it, um, have that protein smoothie afterwards. And then for lunch, not just a sandwich, maybe have a cup of soup and have, um, some veggies or fruit with it, like make it a much more balanced meal, plan to have an afternoon snack, have your usual dinner, um, front loading that nutrition earlier in the day, prioritizing protein would be probably two of the main things that I would start with. And that can exponentially just help her have better energy throughout the day after her workout. Mm, that's yeah. Super good insight. Uh, Ivy, anything occur to you looking at this one? Yeah, I mean, apart from what you've acknowledged about how long it could take someone's body to really reach a better level of homeostasis after making these changes, we're talking months, um, there's no way that it doesn't take at least that long or longer to switch your mindset from diet mindset and uh, being depleted to just, you don't just one day... Be like, okay, I'm going to eat a lot of food and everything I need and not feel stress or assign mm -hmm. guilt to it. And so I really doubt that, you know, even though you're think you're observing that you're checking all the boxes in this healthy food pyramid, I just really doubt that you're eating enough. Um, I would be really surprised if anyone could go through this experience with dieting and depletion and then just one day all of a sudden make a habit change that is sustainable and, um, enough. And so, um, yeah, like this lunch sandwich in my mind, like a healthy lunch sandwich is like four inches tall and has like <laughs> the big thick rustic bread and a bunch of veggies mm -hmm. in it and a bunch of stuff in it and like meats and cheeses and just like everything. And, it's probably just like two little thin slices of slices of wheat bread with a piece of turkey in it or something, you know? <laughs> sure. And so yeah. uh, I wonder what those portions actually look like and how much yogurt you're eating. Is it, like, is it a tiny little yogurt cup or, you know? Um, so I think it's also a volume thing. Um, mm -hmm. And also going to, from oh. keto to... Uh, a regular normal mm -hmm. diet is like a really big shift. And anytime, and this, this happens a lot with athletes is that they'll, they'll make these big shifts and it's so hard on the body. You really have to do things gradually to allow your body some time to adapt. So you don't have those big drastic, like weight fluctuations. And, um, so yeah, Energy as you, as you start improving your nutrition, do it slowly. Don't like overnight revamp things. Cause when we have athletes come in, I'm like, we're going to do this slow and steady. We're going to start with the low hanging fruit. What are some of the easiest, simple changes that we can start out making? And then we're going to progressively build to get you to where we need you to be because, um, it allows the body to adapt. Plus it's going to not feel like a huge shock 
to our lifestyle as well. Cause as humans, we love to resist change. We hate change. Mm-hmm. And so if you're just, uh, you know, going cold Turkey and switching your diet over, it's, it's like it's mentally really hard to stick to that as well. So there's a lot of reasons why you just want to kind of gradually make those adjustments. Um, it tends to work out better in the long run. Yeah. I'm thinking just in terms of, so you said mindset Ivy about this, and I think this is pointing to something, you know, Lauren, you said my FTP is quote only 120. You're coming from a restrictive mindset, um, with dieting, right. For a long time. And you're taking steps against that. Um, it does seem to me also that like, uh, you could take in more energy and then thusly have more energy throughout the day without, having to, and I don't think that you need to worry about putting like weight gain or about, you know, a surplus of energy or anything else. And the reason for that is like in basal metabolic rate calculators, they should have like, yes, I am a parent and yes, I have X amount of kids. (laughs) And like, you should be able to select that. And it just ratchets up your basal metabolic rate. (laughs) Like Lauren said, from your, from the stress perspective and like the mental drain, huge amounts. And then also just from the amount of physical activity that you will do is so high just to keep up with your kids. Like it's really tough because of that. I can't help but wonder if Lauren, you did take in more energy. I wouldn't be surprised if your power did go up. Your workouts will feel number one, a lot easier, even if they're short, like fueling more is going to help so much. And then as a result, you'll probably get stronger. You'll get more capable. You'll be capable of doing more things. And we kind of have this, like we have this, we we treat our body like an equation in some respects. Like I can only take in as much fuel as I'm burning, but we very rarely think about the fact, okay, so how can I burn more? And the burn more part isn't just do more. The burn more part is enable yourself to do more work. And the way you do that is actually by fueling more. So that's where like the whole, like just raw math equation thing kind of breaks down. The more food you put in, actually, the more work you can do. And then as a result, yes, you will burn more. Um, but you become more capable, not just on the bike, but in life in general, when you have more fuel on board, it just makes everything a lot easier. Um, if we're trying to like the, if the strike point of the equation is we're trying to find an aesthetic, we're trying to find a number we're like on a scale or anything else like that. I think we're in the wrong spot. Like we're searching for the wrong thing. Instead, it should be, I want to feel good in terms of energy. And I want to feel like I have enough energy so that I can get through the day. Um, I want to feel like my workouts don't exhaust me. And if that's what the feeling that you're chasing for instead, I think that you're going to find a much more healthy balance that allows the sort of wiggle room that is going to need to exist in your life in order to find that. And in most cases, if you're doing that, I think that you will find that your body composition is optimized. You'll find that your weight is optimized and that it's not, you know, that it's some high number that you're afraid of it going to instead your body finds that it's best spot for operation. It's really good at figuring that out, but we can't do that if we just aren't putting enough in. Like we got to put more in to be able to do more. So I can't tell you how many athletes I've talked to this year who, well, I ask them, I'm like, what's your goals? You come into this nutrition coaching program. What, what do you want us to help you achieve? And the first thing that comes out of their mouth, and I've heard this so many times is that I just want to feel better. That's all they say. Mm. 
And, uh, and I guess awesome. they have other goals as well, but that is the top of their list. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we can do that. Like, let's get you feeling better. Because once you feel better, you can just be a more active, functional person, even outside of your training as well. You can be more productive, more happy, your moods improve. Like it, it makes you want to train more and actually complete your workouts. So, I mean, if that's why you're coming into like improving your nutrition, it's a total legit, uh, reasoning in my mind. Yes, absolutely. Great. Yeah. Great points. All right. Last question from Dean. This one's going to be pretty darn short. I think question. I like how short this is. How much beer is too much beer in the context of training? We have covered this topic many times over the years, but, uh, Dean, and the, at the constant opportunity for modern science to disprove old science. Uh, I looked into this to see if there's anything fresh. Sadly, Dean, there is not <laughs> nothing new. That's telling us that it's, uh, that the two work together very well. Um, there's an article that we have, uh, and I've, uh, it's one that I wrote. It's called alcohol. The reason you're not getting faster is definitely titled to get people to click. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, <clears throat> that article goes into the fact that like shows that like alcohol doesn't do anything beneficial for performance or adaptation. It doesn't like just flat out. There are none. However, all of that said, it does have to be balanced to a certain perspective. Um, right. Uh, Alex, in the sense that like, this is probably a struggle that you deal with the nutrition in general with a lot of people in the sense that like depriving yourself of the things that also bring you joy. If it's like tied to a social experience or anything else, like, you know, post ride beers often are with your friends or something else like that. If you remove that, you can also remove some of your love for the thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It comes down to, yeah. Well, let's define what moderation is. Um, the technical, um, recommendation is for women, one drink a day, men is two. um, but that being said, I wouldn't definitely recommend for athletes that they're doing one to two drinks every single day of their life. You know, that's just, it's, there's no benefit that it's going to provide you, but it also, you have to come down to your priorities. What is the most important thing to you? Is it having a beer socially with your buddies or is it being the best athlete that you can be? Sometimes you can kind of shift where your priorities are throughout the year. You know, that's something where I've seen athletes they are like, yeah, I kind of like give up alcohol during training season. And then the off season, I, you know, will have a little bit more alcohol, you know, during the holidays or whatever it is. And that's perfectly fine for people to do. I think it just is a matter of kind of just saying what's the most important thing to me. And if you're not sure what that is, then, you know, think about it (laughs) at that point. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, I have uh, one athlete who's training for Kona and she's nailing her nutrition, but she does socially drink quite a bit. And that's her choice. And we're really respectful of that. Um, but then I have some athletes who are like, oh, I'm not seeing the results I want. And I'm like, well, let's have a little come to Jesus conversation about the alcohol <laughs> and say, like, if you really, really want to see these results, we might have to cut back on the alcohol at this point, just temporarily to get you to where you need to be. So that's kind of my take yeah. on it. Ebbs and flows. How do you balance this Ivy? Because I know for you cyclocross season is like a main focus for you. Uh, and then, but like you also use the bike more. I feel like you use the bike at a broader range than most people do. Cause 
a lot of us like, like me, I just train in our race and that's basically it. And, but you go for bike packing trips. Like you cruise around on bikes with your friends to go, I don't know, hang out at a river or do anything mm-hmm. else. Like, like you, bikes are more than just a racing tool for you. So how do you manage it? And we know I love the sauce, so it's hard. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, like you're mentioning, John, about um, if you're restricting those things that give you joy, is it really worth it? And for me, what I found recently is when I don't habitually have dinner wine or a cute little nightcap that makes me happy – it makes me much happier to wake up and feel fresh and stoked and really nail my workouts. And I think there's a chance that I might be a little more sensitive to than most people to alcohol, which is sad, horribly sad to learn. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> um, but I felt it when I took uh, a little step away and even just after a few days started feeling much, much, much better. And it was so sad to learn that. Um, but, but I feel, uh, you know, it makes me, um, enjoy those moments that I do decide to have, uh, a beer after a really hard workout or a river, river beer with friends or, um, a bike packing tequila or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it more enjoyable. And then, uh, when I feel better on the bike, it's more enjoyable too. So I think that moderation and that approach in, in what, makes you feel good is totally different for everyone and probably depends upon your sensitivity and how much you train and how seriously you want to take it. And if you really feel a difference, I know a lot of athletes that wouldn't feel a difference if they had a dinner wine or not. And it might be the habitual nature of it, um, every day or every other day that makes that kind of builds that kind of long lasting, uh, fatigue's not the right word, but maybe that's what I found with myself when I was doing it often. It kind of felt like I was in this weird hole and could never, never really, really, really feel fresh because I was doing it Mm. often, you know? Yeah. Meaning uh, those isolated instances of, I haven't had a glass of wine or a drink in a week. I'm going to have a dinner wine might not affect you in the same way as if you're doing that every day or every other day, you know? Low, yeah. low grade poisoning yourself basically <laughs> is what I Quite decided literally. I was yeah, doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like you're lowering the tide. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the sense that like, it's always just slightly lower. Um, yeah, those are, those are great thoughts Ivy. And I think also these days it seems like there's more options for non-alcoholic, uh, drinks as well that you could take in. So I know plenty of athletes that like they'll take in like athletic brewing or like other companies like that, that make like non-alcoholic beer, and that'll be their go-to. And then like you mentioned, Ivy, like when it's a celebratory moment for one reason or another, that's when they might switch it out and they might have something that it's an alcoholic beer or something like that. So there's a lot of options. Like, you know, it's, it affects your sleep adversely a hundred percent. Like there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. It doesn't help. It affects it. Um, and, you may and feel hydration. Like you can go to- hydration and sleep, I think are the two that I would consider the biggest impacts. Yeah. And alcohol itself also is going to affect things like gluconeogenesis. It's going to affect protein synthesis. It's going to 
adversely affect all of those processes, much through affecting sleep and affecting all the other things that we're talking about as well. It affects absorption and and at the gut level too, in terms of what you're taking in from the dinner that you had. So yeah, it's like, it's all bad things. Um, and I point to that in the article, like kind of like going through the itemized list of all the bad things that it does, but there are options that you can have. And, and I know that it's tempting with beer in particular, like, but it's got carbs. So it's like, <laughs> you know, and so does booze, but, <laughs> um, but it's, you know, you've got options that you can take in now that aren't quite there. And sadly, Dean, you know, there's a lot of research going on in this world. And if you wanted to like fund more research to see if you can find like a scientific justification for it, I'd suggest, uh, reaching out to them and see if you, you can fund that. But, uh, you know, as of now, the science has not changed. It's still consistent and shows what Alex and Ivy were talking about there. So, you know, it's what it is. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Thanks Alex for coming on. Alex, you're getting closer to your due date. You're within a month or two. Yeah. I know. I'm like counting down the days here. I've got maybe like five, five, five weeks left here. So it's coming close, coming to a close and then I can, let's hope for no longer than five weeks then. So. <laughs> yeah, that would be really great. They won't let me go over my due date. So I'm like, okay, at least for sure before September 15th, I love this baby. And then I'm done having more kids. <laughs> Well, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, uh, this is the last time you'll be on for a while because you got the baby um, coming. I think, I don't know, maybe, did we plan an August one? I don't remember. I can't remember. Or, uh, perhaps we did plan an August one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think you'll be on one more time. And then after that, um, we we'll won't take, have Alex I'll on take for a while, little. So. I'll take a little break, but, um, it's hard for me to step away from work completely because I truly just love my job so much. So, yeah. um, I have parents that are retired that live very close by um that will be willing to help out too so i might be like i just need some human interaction so jonathan let's let's do a podcast here (laughs) (laughs) the baby can hang out with grandma and grandpa for a couple hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah the door's open for it but also if you just want to follow along and learn from alex and reach out to alex and even use alex as your as your dietitian to help with your nutrition everything else alex alex larson nutrition on instagram you can find her there and uh, yeah, yeah, I suggest great follow. My, my team and I are here to help. Even while I'm on maternity leave, I have two other dietitians on my team that work with athletes and we've been just loving, um, all of the trainer road cyclists that we've been working with this year. They've been great. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, fantastic. Uh, next episode or next week's episode, we're going to have Nate on. Uh, we're also, man, I, I kind of saved it up. I didn't mention it this week, but we have a lot of new feature announcements, like small little ones, but also some impactful ones that are coming out soon. So, and some have already come out, which is exciting. Some are going to be in early access. Anyways, stay tuned for that. We're going to talk all about that next week. Sign up for trainer road, go to trainerroad.com, Check it out. If it doesn't make you faster, we'll happily refund you. We have a 30 day money back guarantee, but give it a shot especially there's so many of the vast majority of you that listen to this podcast haven't signed up for trainer road. We still love you and it's still totally okay to not do that, but give it a shot. It'll make you faster. And we'll talk to y'all next week. Thanks everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.